We're in the middle of an amazing study of the book of Revelation, and you're about to hear some pretty crazy stuff. If you're new to our church, we believe that what you're about to hear is actually all God's word. Every part of it breathed and is useful. But for many Christians, the book of Revelation still remains very confusing and frankly not that comforting. Our burden is that that would change for you even today. You would see something and say, that brings me incredible comfort because it's him and it's his word. So as I read, I'm going to read from verse 1 through verse 13 of chapter 11. This is an interlude, an intermission, just like last week, between the sixth trumpet blast and the final trumpet blast of judgment, which you'll hear more about next week. So let's go to the text. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, or you can follow along in the bulletin. Again, Revelation chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. This is what John saw, and this is what John wrote. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour... There was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, as we open your word, we're first of all grateful that you, through your work, Holy Spirit, have convinced us it's true. We know that not all of it is equal in its understanding, and we're limited. But it's still your word it promises to bring us comfort. So bless this time of your preached word that it would go deep into our hearts and transform us even in this moment, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So for you, the book of Revelation, is it comfort or is it confusion? We're smack in the middle of this incredible book 
the end of the Bible. It's God's Word. From the very beginning, I've reminded us that when we study apocalyptic literature, there is going to be things we don't understand. Some things are meant to be literal. Some things are meant to be symbolic. And even those who study and are part of the same seminaries and denominations find themselves in different places on those things where there is much mystery. But that's actually not the majority of Revelation. The majority of Revelation has so much that's concrete and therefore comforting for us, no matter where we line ourselves up with time periods, etc. This is important to remember. 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes, all Scripture is God-breathed, not just some of it, all of it. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful, not just some of it, all of it. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We as a church are committed to the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith. In the very first chapter of the Confession, listen to how they describe the Word of God. It says, the purpose of the Word, it pleased the Lord to reveal Himself and to declare His will unto His church for the more sure establishment and comfort. Listen to this. For the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world. Revelation chapter 11 is one of those rather challenging chapters in the book of Revelation that is designed by God, breathed by God, to bring you and to bring me comfort. How does it do it? This morning, we live in a world and we know things of our world that are very confusing. Revelation was not given to us by God to describe everything that's going to happen in a literal time period, but it's given to us by God to bring us comfort in the confusion, in the chaos. Let's begin, for example, of looking what's going to happen. Go, if you would, to verse 9. Let's actually, let's go to verse 7 first. And when they, speaking of the two witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now, I want you to picture this. We're going to come back to it in a minute in greater detail. But these two witnesses have been killed by this beast. Their bodies are now laying in the streets of this symbolic city, Sodom, Egypt, and where the Lord was crucified. Verse 9, look at it with me. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, that means from all nations, will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Imagine if this was something that happened in the modern world we live in now. Imagine these two witnesses were killed by the beast and their bodies are laying in the streets. In the world today, what we would see, all of us, if we wanted to, is individuals who would have pulled out their phones, took pictures of these dead bodies, videotaped the crowd that's around them, 
Some perhaps would have even included themselves in it because they're delighting on what they're seeing. That these two witnesses, these lampstands, these lights of the church have been killed. They bothered us for all these months. They spoke against us. They prophesied against us. And now they're dead. This is victory. The wicked world rejoices. It literally is like Christmas for them. Do you see it? Let's exchange gifts. Let's have merriment. These two who represented Christ, who spoke of Christ, are dead. Celebrate with me. And you would see it on all your social media accounts. Newscasts would cover it, and images of these two dead bodies would be there. That's how dark the world is. And that's how dark the world will be. As we move through this text, you may have a pretty strong position of where you stand in relationship to the timing of things. My attention's not going to be on the timing of things. It's going to be on the things that are concrete. And what we know in a concrete way is that the church, from the beginning, has been persecuted. And the church, until the very end, is going to grow in intensity of the persecution that comes against it. And the church right now, whether we're near the final days or we're still in the age of the early church, we don't know, is being persecuted. And what God gives us in these chapters, in these verses, these visions that John received is incredibly comforting. But how? Well, let's begin with this. The church of God has outlived empires and civilizations through the ages. There have been many times when people thought it must be soon. I believe most of the disciples who walked with Jesus and those in the early church truly thought he would return before they died. I really believe that, but he didn't. It's been thousands of years later. The church of God has outlived empires and civilizations through the ages. Many times the world has celebrated the demise of the church only to find it spring back to life again. Revelation reveals here not just an episode in the future, but a picture of the church across the ages bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. The book was written to comfort the church. Then, those first people to hear this vision. And now. So how does it comfort us? Well, let's look at first. It comforts us in being counted. What does that mean? Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 11. John is speaking. This is the interlude between the sixth trumpet blast and the seventh. And John says, then I was given a rod, a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise. This word, by the way, is very important in this chapter. I was told, John says, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But, verse 2, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So what's going on here? First of all, the New Testament constantly talks about the temple. It's no longer being a building. It is the people of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. That's why you hear us often in a worship service talking about how 
The living God is in us. Not just the idea of God, not just the worldview of Christ. Christ himself through his spirit lives in us. We are the temple. So that when John is told to take this rod and measure the temple, it's not just a physical measurement. Today, if somebody asked me, what is the size of the sanctuary? It would not take me long to find the blueprints or somebody that knows where they are to say, this is how tall it is. From the antiphonal organ to these pipes, this is how long it is. This is how wide it is from this stained glass window to that one. This is how many people it will seat. Who cares? That's the measurement of a building. The measurement of this particular expression of his church, like all of his church, is you. It's the people of God. The people who truly are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have been counted. And this matters. Revelation 7, between the sixth trumpet, or I'm sorry, the sixth seal being opened in the seventh, the Lord talks about those who are truly his are numbered. They have a mark on their forehead that says they are mine. If you are in Christ, you are one of his, numbered now and will be for all eternity. We take great comfort in being numbered by Christ and with Christ. But here comes a warning, and it would be easy to miss. Verse 2, John's told, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. This is important, especially where we live. Those who were not in the temple, but were in the courts of the temple, had the temptation of thinking that, you know, we still kind of belong because we're in proximity. Many in the church today think that as well. They think, just because I have a relative, maybe my mom or my dad or my grandmother or my grandfather or an aunt or an uncle or a sibling, just because they are a Christian, somehow that got passed down to me and I am a Christian. John is offering an incredible warning here that those who are in the temple are in and those who are outside the temple are not even to be numbered. They will be lost for all eternity unless they come to saving faith. In the Bible Belt where we live, this is really important because many people think just because I live in the city or I have a relative or a friend that believes these things, I'm in too. And that's not the case. I want to make something very, very clear, especially if you're a young person, because you've grown up with this, but it's true of all ages. You are either in Christ or you are out of Christ. How many of you like the burger place in and out? Just curious. Raise your hand. It's okay. I know some of you are like, now I'm hungry. All right. How many of you like Whataburger better? Raise your hand. All right. Church split right there. It could happen. Every time... Every time you see in and out, I want you to remember this. Every time. I'm sorry I'm giving you a burden that'll probably stick with you the rest of your life. Christianity is not in and out. It's in or out. It is not Jesus saying there's two roads. He does say this. There's a wide road and there's a narrow road. The wide road leads toward destruction. Ultimately, separation from him for eternity. And the narrow road leads to life. Life in him, now and forever. Here's the problem in the Bible Belt. So many people believe that I can have one foot 
on the wide road and one foot on the narrow road. And because they imagine that these are parallel paths, I can walk both of them. If that's the way you're thinking, I want to tell you very clearly, you are in danger of the fire of hell, of being separated from God for all eternity, because that's not Christianity. Christianity is you're either in Christ or you're outside. You are either in the temple, numbered, or you are out. The roads are not parallel. They go in opposite directions. So if you're trying to walk both, just play the picture out. You can't go very far. So are you in or are you out? It's not in and out. Today, you may be here saying, I'm so thankful. I know I'm in. Praise God for his grace. But today you may be here saying, I've never heard this, and I'm not sure. If you're not sure, let that be a comfort that brings you to the promise of certainty. You can know today, I'm in. And when you're in, you're in for all eternity because your life changes. You become a new person. The gospel says we are born again. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, 16. Paul says it this way, whoever's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's not in and out, in and out, in and out. It is in or out, and I pray that you're in. And if today you know you're not, and you hear this truth and you want to be in, come and talk to me. Pray with somebody around you. You may have saving faith. The comfort is in being counted. If you are in Christ, you are counted. There's a second comfort, though, and that comes from being commissioned. Look with me at verse um, 6. Let's go to verse 3, actually. John says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. We're not going to get into the numbers. The numbers are not relevant to the specificity of what we can be comforted by. What we can be comforted by is that there are two witnesses. And these two witnesses have a number of things going for them. First, it's this. They've been given the authority of Christ. Verse 3, again. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. But what else do they have? Well, first, they have his protection. Look with me at verse 6. These two witnesses, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Do you see that power? What do you think immediately came to John's mind? And those who would be listening. Elijah, the prophet, the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall. Moses, the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with plagues. These two witnesses, these two witnesses have this incredible authority and power. Along with the authority and power, though, they also have protection. Look with me at verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, the Lord says, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. So as the Lord sends them out to accomplish their mission, his mission, they have his authority. They also have his power, the power that Elijah and Moses had. They have his protection. If people come against them, this is what will take place. They also have the promise that it will be fulfilled. 
Notice this interesting language in verse 4. Look with me. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What does that mean? Well, the church is the light. Christ's light shines through his witnesses. As these lampstands shine brightly in a dark world, we know what's going to happen. Darkness hates the light. That's why they celebrated their death, because they tormented them as they told the truth. But these lampstands will not go out. And the reason they won't go out is because the olive trees are the ones that provide the fuel, the oil that is needed to keep the lamps burning. Like them, we who are in Christ, who take comfort in being numbered and counted, we've been given the same commission. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus speaks of his authority. And then he says, now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So their, their mission comes to an end. What happens? Look with me at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Once they have fulfilled what Christ called them to, there is a beast. The word rise comes again. This beast representing Satan and his demonic forces is going to rise up from the earth. And as it rises up, they are going to encounter war with the beast. We take comfort in being counted. We take comfort in being commissioned like them. We also can take comfort in the beastly conflict. But you have to ask, why? They are killed. They die. Friends, the Lord never promised any of us that we wouldn't die for him. He never promised any of us that we wouldn't suffer for his name. He promised the opposite. Depending on where we are in the history of the church and Christ's return, it's likely that you might have to truly suffer for Christ or even die for Christ. Or one of your children, our grandchildren. During Pete's prayer, I heard a child, and the child said, Papa, and that's my name to the 18-month-old little girl that was in the back over there. Some of you probably heard her and were like, shh. I heard my name. And I wonder what the world's going to be like for her growing up. I imagine in some ways it's going to look a lot darker. Will her parents, my daughter and son-in-law, be prepared and ready and confident and comforted by the fact that no matter what happens to those who are counted, whether we suffer severe persecution or even death, we're okay. These two witnesses, we're not told how they die, but they die. But we, we are told how their bodies are treated. Go back with me to verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. 
It's a horrific picture. Back to the phone, the world we live in, able to see this kind of celebration. It's like Christmas. The wicked world rejoices. The two witnesses of Christ are dead. There is an apparent triumph. Jeffrey Wilson says the beast represents those anti-Christian powers in the world which seek to silence the church's witness, resulting in the, quote, apparent triumph of the forces of evil. There are many times in the history of the church that it looked as if the church was dead, lying in the streets, and celebrations ensued. During the Cultural Revolution of China, Mao's desire was to take all religion, and particularly Christianity, out. Those who were committed to continuing to remain faithful were put in camps, many never to be seen again. Did it work? Today, like it was during the Great Awakening in our country a long time ago, Christians are rising up. Small house churches with 10 to 60 people gather all the time quietly to worship the Lord. I've been in those houses. Over in China, when we were there to proclaim Christ, one out of three individuals would come to saving faith. It was unbelievable to watch. The church is never going to be stopped. There's an apparent triumph that this wicked world is celebrating. These two witnesses are dead. Where then does the comfort in this conflict come from? Well, it comes from what happens next. It's comfort in the rising. And I want to be very clear. As the church today, most of us are not living in the reality of this power. And the reason is because we're so tempted to just think of Christianity as a worldview and not the reality of our union with Jesus. If you are in Christ, you have been risen as well. If you are in Christ, the power that caused these two witnesses to rise is in you now. So what happens? Look with me at verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Think about the timing. A few days have gone by. The dead bodies are still there. Lots of pictures and video has been taken and shared. Many are probably bored now and moving on, but there are still those lingering around. And as they're lingering around, someone begins to notice one of the bodies twitching, and then the other one. That which was dead, declared dead, this is victory for us. Here is a present to celebrate. Let's have merriment. Let's 
party because they're dead. Now they're waking up. They were really dead, by the way, not mostly dead. And now they're waking up. They are rising. And as they rise, these individuals who have phones loaded with images and pictures are witnessing something that is utterly terrifying. Those who were dead are now alive. Same number of days Christ was put in the tomb. And on that morning, the stones rolled away. The body of Christ isn't there. Verse 12 says, Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, this voice is to the two witnesses, Come up here. Do you see the theme of rise? John, rise and go measure the temple. Don't measure those outside the temple. The two messengers, witnesses, they rise and they go to the nations. They finish their work. God sees to it. Then the belly of the beast, the beast rises and they're killed. But now they hear these words from heaven, come up here. And those who had resurrected bodies, resurrected life, are now, just like our Savior did, ascending up. And there the enemies watch them. Can you imagine the phones? Just Their enemies watched those who were laying dead in the street for three days, now rising towards the heavens. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. We take comfort in being counted. Are you in Christ? Praise God. If today you realize you're not, this is what's at stake. May this be the day the Lord saves you. We take comfort in being counted. We take comfort in being commissioned. Even if it means in the conflict with the beast, we will lose our lives. Because we take comfort in the rising. That one day, all who are in Christ will rise to all eternity. We will ascend. Those who've gone before us, their resurrected bodies will ascend. This is what the Word of God teaches us. We rise. Friend, I want to ask you a question as I land the plane. Do the majority of your conversations today that give commentary on the world we live in, which is dark, the symbolic city, Sodom, Egypt, and the place the Lord was crucified, it matters. Sodom is the place of per, just re, gross sexual sin and confusion around sexual orientation. Egypt is the place of Israel's bondage, being led by hard-hearted leaders. And the place where Christ was crucified is where the people rejected the Messiah. Those who said on Palm Sunday, praise Jehovah, are now the ones saying crucify him. When you think of the world we live in, 
and a condition that is so dark. As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling, knowing, and believing the comfort that is ours in him and his word? Or do you find yourself living in great fear, in commentary, almost as if we don't have a chance? But we don't. And there will be times when the church looks like it is dead in the streets. But our comfort is in the one. It's in the only one who can cause that which looks dead to rise, to cause all who would celebrate the death of the church to see the glory of God. Your comfort and the truth of God, your comfort in the person of God has everything you need to sustain you now, no matter how dark and evil the world looks. Our King, eternal, is leading us. He is with us. He will never forsake us. Father in heaven, thank you for this word. These things that seem so mysterious, when we slow down and your spirit fills our minds, we begin to understand that you didn't give this word to us just to confuse us or to have our minds fixed on things that are so mysterious. You gave it to comfort us that we might find our hope in you. Here is hope, and hope is Christ our risen Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.